0: We appreciate the uh, kind words from Jack. It's good to be back this morning, and I really had something good to show you. I looked in my suitcase to see what I packed. I was looking for an undershirt this morning. I pulled out a white dress, <laughs> and I started to bring it to show it to you. My wife is really going to be tickled about that. <laughs> but we're going to get underway. Uh, we've got bit of distance to go, I'm going to talk this morning on the Holy Spirit and resurrection. And uh, to look at the role of the Holy Spirit in resurrection, hopefully to give you a greater appreciation for uh, the Holy Spirit and for uh, resurrection and how that works together. When we consider this subject, I'd like to focus your attention to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 27 and 28. And it is here where God promised to restore Israel to their land. And the time of the restoration corresponds with the sending of the Holy Spirit. God stated that he would deliver Israel from all of their uncleannesses. He also uh, would bless them with faithful harvest, and he promised that they would have no famine. And, of course, there were many other blessings that uh, God promised to them. In verse 26, he says, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now, in order to raise Israel from the dead, since God told them that he was going to put his spirit in them and they would live, he promises, therefore, uh, to put his spirit in them, and he says that he was going to uh, put the spirit in them, they would live, and he was going to place them in their own land. So we also see that resurrection is connected to Israel's uh, restoration to their land. So we cannot separate, therefore, the spirit, we cannot separate the land, and we cannot separate resurrection. They're all uh, one and the same, or rather they all work together. Now in chapter 37, verses 11 through 14, we have a very well-known text with the uh, prophecy of the dry bones. And in verses 11 through 14, once again, God promises to put his spirit within them. Now, for a long time, I thought this was more of a metaphorical text in that it foreshadowed some things being fulfilled earlier. But after I got to looking at the Holy Spirit and its work, uh, I could see, based on what God promised, all the other prophecies that were associated with it, that he was actually prophesying the resurrection. And so he says, I will place my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it. And I might want to back up and just read a couple of more verses, uh, starting at verse 11. He says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Now, when we look at Ezekiel 37, we see Israel and the coming of the Holy Spirit. We see the time of the restoration or their restoration to the land, it is also the time of their resurrection. It is the time of the reuniting and the regathering of Israel and Judah into one nation because as you go on down and read the chapter you find where he talks about the two sticks. Uh the whole house of Judah and the house of Israel that he brings together back in this uh in this parable of the two sticks that are being formed together. And we find the fulfillment of that uh, worked out in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2 of course is uh, a primary passage on that, and there are many other passages in the New Testament which demonstrate that. He also pointed out that they would have one king, that is David, over them, and that there would be one shepherd. And, of course, in John 10 and verse 16, Jesus talks about uh, that there were other sheep who were not of that fold. Of course, he was uh, sent to Judah, but uh, the Bible says that there were other sheep who were not of that fold, meaning that he was going to call back Israel through the calling in of the Gentiles, you also have Isaiah 56 and verse 8, which supports that as well. And then uh, the scripture says that God would make an everlasting covenant of peace with Israel. You'll find that later on in the chapter, around about verse 26. And he would set his covenant in their midst forevermore. So there are several uh, points here. There are several constituent elements that's involved in Israel's restoration, and Israel's regathering to the land in the uh, setting up or the reconciliation of Israel and Judah, the setting up of David the king over them, and the everlasting covenant of peace, which God would make with them, as well as setting up the sanctuary or the tabernacle in their midst forevermore. Now, when we consider that, we see the role of the eschatological spirit. The Holy Spirit forms a common thread through all of Israel's premises. There is nothing that Israel has promised in her last days that is outside of the scope of the work of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, when we are discussing uh, end-time matters, we should always uh, understand the underlying role of the Spirit in that work. So the Spirit's role and work define the time and the nature of fulfillment. Once we step outside of the role of the Spirit and start talking about the end-time we get into trouble. And, of course, we see that every day when we listen to people who talk about uh, the end time and ignore the role of the eschatological spirit in the New Testament. Now, the coming of the spirit in the last days signals that Israel's restoration, regathering, and resurrection is imminent. Uh, Jack yesterday pointed out or alluded to the uh, the imminent role of, of judgment and resurrection in talking about the spirit in uh 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where uh, it pointed out that it was a sign, and it alluded also to Isaiah 28, through 16, where God was going to bring a foreign nation or a nation that uh, spoke in a foreign tongue to them. And that was a sign of impending judgment upon Israel. It was also uh, correlated with resurrection and correlated with their restoration. And so we can see the role of the Spirit as it relates to Israel. And thus it uh, signals that Israel's restoration uh, regathering, and that the resurrection was imminent. Now, when we look at the continuity of Holy Spirit passages, we find that all Holy Spirit passages in the New Testament have Joel 2 as their background. I remember years ago when Don, Jack, and myself had debates with uh, Steve Wiggins and uh, Bill Lockwood. Of course, this was a sugar stick passage uh, or point in the debate. And I remember even in, in my debate with him, which I was very experienced inexperienced as a debater, but uh, I remember bringing this point up, and you know point that Steve uh, raised when I did. He said, well, you can blow and go on that all night long. Well, with my inexperience, I didn't. If I were still debating, I would still be blowing and going on that to this day, because it was a critical point. They had accepted the fact that the Holy Spirit's work uh, ended in A.D. 70 and therefore uh, affected everything that related to the end time, and yet they were unable to, or at least unwilling, to acknowledge it in a public discussion. Nevertheless, the work of the Holy Spirit commences during Israel's last days, and consummates Israel's last days, and the fulfillment of all of Israel's end-time promises, and as we've said, including resurrection. And thus, not one square inch of Israel's real estate, not one dry bone of Israel's covenant body, not one lost sheep of Israel's flock, and not one alienated sojourner of Israel's outcasts lie, or lies outside the work of the Holy Spirit. All resurrection, resurrection, regathering, and reconciliation or redemption passages in the New Testament have Ezekiel 36 and 37 as their background. And of course we all know that Joel 2 is the background of the Holy Spirit and it's outpouring in the last days. Now, in order to effect Israel's restoration to her land, God promises to raise Israel from the dead. The absence from the land is covenantal debt. And this is one thing that we have to understand and we have to recognize. Israel separated from her land is the essence of being separated from God and his presence and indwelling in the temple. It is separation from the presence of God, and thus it is covenantal death. And so Israel is separated from God and the temple under the rule of a foreign nation. And they are viewed, for example, in Isaiah 26:19 through 21 as dwelling in the dust. Now, let's, let's take a look at that text for just a moment and uh, note that because, a lot, you know, a lot of times when we read these passages about resurrection and we read about uh, those who are sleeping in the dust of the earth, uh, we want to literalize it. We want to materialize it. We want to uh, physicalize it. We want to make it biological. But this is covenantal. It has to do with Israel being out of her land or separated from God it is a reference to Israel's spiritual relationship and lack of fellowship with God as a result. And so he says in verse 19, Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body they shall rise. arise. awaken, and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, into your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place uh, to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. Of course, Israel at the time was in captivity. And this uh, passage, there goes my watch, this passage is a reference to uh, Israel coming out from under uh, foreign uh, rulers. Now, there's a passage that we often use in Psalm 116 as a funeral text. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And we kind of treat that text the same way we do John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And we use it as a text to comfort people at funerals. And, of course, I'm not saying that we shouldn't use it for that purpose. Uh, but that's not the primary reference or meaning of the text. And I'm always the type that like to at least find out what were they saying from the beginning, what did it mean from the beginning, and then I can decide how I'm going to apply it if I want. Uh, but nevertheless, this passage, Precious in the Sight of the Lord, is the death of his saints, has to do with Israel being in Sheol, has to do with Israel being in bondage, has to do with Israel being delivered from captivity and being restored back to their land so they can worship God, so they can be in fellowship with God. Uh, If you'll note in Psalm 116 in verse 8, it will say that God would deliver Israel's soul from death. He would also wipe away tears, which is another covenantal point. And we find that, of course, in Revelation 21 in verse 3, that he will wipe all tears from their eyes. So this is covenantal language. This is technical language for the parousia, for the end time, And therefore, when he's talking about precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, he's talking about Israel in their non-relation with him, their lack of fellowship with him, their need to be brought back to be restored to him. And God looks upon that and sees them even in their condition as precious. Now, that's that's an awesome thought when you really think about it. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his his saints. He continually focuses on them because of the promises that he made and because of his will to uh, to restore them. And so God would wipe away tears from their eyes, he would restore them, and Israel would walk before the Lord in God's presence. Now, it's also interesting that when you look at that text in Psalm 116, and let me get there for just a moment, there's another verse that is, is stated there that helps us to see uh, exactly what he's talking about, especially as it relates to resurrection, and it is applied in the New Testament to a resurrection text to an end-time passage, letting us know that this text is definitely focused on the end-time. So, in verse 8, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Notice the next verse. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. Now, I want to focus on verse 10. Now, where do we find that text? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So let's just flip over there for just a moment. And in 2 Corinthians 4, and we alluded to it on yesterday, we mentioned it yesterday, but it's right in the heart of a resurrection chapter, or a couple of resurrection chapters in that context. But notice what Paul is saying in this context, and we'll allude to this a little bit further on in the presentation. He says in verse 10, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Now he's dealing with resurrection passages, and he says, and since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. So, in verse 14, Knowing therefore he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Think about that in the context of precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Here is Paul taking this language and applying it to an eschatological text in the New Testament showing that what God was really focused on was delivering his people from the bondage of death, from the bondage of sin death, and bring them into uh, the uh, light of the new covenant. We'll uh, have more to say about that as we go along. And so when we consider that, he's saying he who raised up uh, Jesus, or the Lord Jesus, is the Holy Spirit, and Israel therefore being restored to worship in the courts of God's house in the midst of Jerusalem, that's basically what Psalm 23 and 6 is all about. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, all the major themes of Ezekiel's prophecy. In the gospel uh, found in the Gospel of John. If you look at the new birth, that's Ezekiel 36-25 um, uh, in John chapter 3. The opening of Israel's graves. We alluded to that in, in uh, Ezekiel chapter 37. All of these are mentioned in the Gospel of John, and it's very interesting uh, when you just kind of think about the correlations that you find there. The opening of Israel's graves, John 5, 28 and 29. But remember what we said? This, All of these passages have Ezekiel 36 as their background. They are all uh, supported and uh, underground, uh, or excuse me, they are uh, grounded by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so when we talk about John 5 and 28, you know, people want to focus on all that are in the graves. But again, we cannot separate that from the work of the Holy Spirit. And we have to see that thread running through uh, each of these passages. The restoration and regathering of Israel under one shepherd. In John chapter 10, verse 16, as we have alluded earlier, and also Ezekiel 36 and 27, the preparation of the house of God. Remember, he said, I would set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. Well, that is the house. Now, that's the true application of John chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, are many mansions. Jesus was talking about the tabernacle. He was talking about the uh, greater and more perfect tabernacle that would be set up. This is what he has in mind. He wasn't necessarily talking about a funeral, even though he was going to die very shortly thereafter. But primarily, uh, the, the house that he's discussing is that sanctuary that God would set up. And again, that's undergirded by Ezekiel 36 and uh, 37. And also, in uh, we have the coming of the Holy Spirit, in John chapters 14 through 16. So if you think about the Gospel of John, and there, there are many books that you can tie in to John, but here's another book where so much of the heart of the message is found right here in the Gospel. Uh, it's, it's almost as though he's giving a commentary on Ezekiel's prophecy in terms of the new birth, the restoration and the gathering, the opening of the graves, the preparation of the house of God, and also the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, every New Testament resurrection passage, therefore, as we said, must be interpreted in the light of the work of the Holy Spirit last days ministry. If you can understand this chart I tried to put together, uh, we can see Old Testament prophecy. And then uh, as you move into the, uh, the chart uh, where you see the, the two triangles there, the lower triangle represents the last days of Israel's end time. In other words, as you can see, that's a period that's transitioning out. Whereas uh, at the top triangle, the lighter one, you can see this is the beginning of the new covenant, where the new age is breaking in, just like Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 5 states, that we have tasted of the uh, heavenly gift and of the powers of the age to come. So you can see it breaking in to that last day's period, and therefore is a transition. And it reaches its consummation in A.D. 70 at the fall of Jerusalem, and of course thereafter we have what is presently called the age to come, which is the age in which we live today. It is an age that has no end, and therefore uh, that is uh, what was effected by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That was the result of the Holy Spirit's work to bring about this age that is endless, wherein all of the blessings that was being worked out in that period are now realities for us, uh, in uh, and under the gospel. Now, let's look at a few passages that uh, focus on the Spirit and the resurrection, and I, I want to go through some of these and just talk about them a little bit, and then we'll move on because we have a little bit more material to cover. Uh, in Romans 8 and verse 11, and I think this was one of the verses that came up. I'll mention it later because I have it later in the in the text. But if the Spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, God will also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by what? By his spirit, which dwells in you. So here's a resurrection passage, but it is not resurrection apart from the Holy Spirit. It's a passage that relates to the Spirit. I always tell this story sometimes I get to this passage, because I remember when I was in preaching school, and um, the uh, director of the school was teaching on the Holy Spirit. And he held the position that, the work of the Holy Spirit was completed in A.D. 70. At the time, he was teaching out of uh, late Brother Franklin Camp's book, The Work of the Holy Spirit and Redemption. I think that's pretty close to the name. I might not have got it uh, absolutely correct. And so that day, I was kind of sitting at the back of the class, and my uh, buddy, I guess if I could call him that, I don't know whether you can call a person that tries to get you sabotage, or sabotage you and get you kicked out of school because of your views, could be your buddy, Right. <laughs> But at any rate, we did share a lot of thoughts, ate dinner at each other's homes and, and stuff like that, but you know, he had his views and I had mine, and of course he felt like he was the fire chief of the, of our class and was therefore going to put out, stamp out all the fires that came up in, in terms of doctrine. So, he was sitting at the front of the class, and I was sitting at the back, and we came across this passage. And it was just one of those I could not let pass up. I couldn't let the moment pass, and so I asked the question, I said, this passage says that the uh, spirit that raised up Christ from the dead would also make alive the mortal body. I said, now, what kind of spirit raised Christ from the dead? I said, was that not miraculous spirit? Well, you have to understand, now, the book that he was teaching from affirmed that very strongly. And that was his position. So could he deny it? No, not in front of the class, at, for sure. And so he agreed that that was the position. I said, well, okay, if that is the a position that this is the miraculous power of the Spirit, I said, then, if the work of the Holy Spirit was completed by 70 A.D., another point which he agreed with and affirmed and was teaching in class that very day, I said, doesn't that mean that the resurrection has already been accomplished? And my friend who was sitting about where Don is, Turned around in his seat, he just spun around all of a sudden. He looked back at me and I was sitting back kind of where Jack was and his jaw hit the floor. (laughs) And uh, then he looked back up at the instructor and the instructor was sitting up (laughs) trying to clear his throat. (laughs) And it was the funniest scene that I'd ever seen in class almost. It was just hilarious. And uh, and I just sat back there and just put one of those sheepish grins on my face. (laughs) (laughs) Because I knew I had them both. (laughs) And, uh, And there was nothing he could say. But uh, it was just a point that just naturally followed, and I, you know, it was a great opportunity to make the point. But nevertheless, uh, it demonstrates that uh, the resurrection was completed because it falls within the parameters of the work of the Holy Spirit in that first century generation. Now also, as we alluded to on yesterday, 1 Corinthians 15 is also within the parameters of the work of the Holy Spirit. Even though we don't find necessarily the Spirit mentioned in the chapter, it's like any other point. It's like baptism and belief. It may not be mentioned in John 3.16, but it's certainly implied there. And any other text that we, uh, see where there are constituent elements that are part of that text, we have to include it. And so, when the Bible says that God had both raised us up in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 14, and will also raise up us, or raise up the Lord Jesus rather, will also raise us up by his power, that is the undergirding of 1 Corinthians 15, letting us know that this chapter also is being outward. and Jack did a marvelous job with the uh, passive uh, verbs in the text uh, that demonstrate that this was something that was being done. It is being sown. It is being raised, and therefore uh, demonstrate that. But how was it being done? It was being done through the power and through the work of the eschatological spirit. And therefore, once again, First it doesn't matter what your view of First Corinthians is in terms of can we get in and understand all the details of the chapter. The point is, it's just like Romans eight and verse eleven. It has to fall in. And you know, if I had really been smart, I'd have thrown that on them too that day. <laughs> that really would have would have gotten them. But it's it's the same thing, and therefore it falls within those same parameters. And again, we just read from Second Corinthians four and verse fourteen, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Another passage that indicates the work of the Holy Spirit is a vital part of what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'll be talking about the larger context of 2 Corinthians 4 uh, in just a few minutes. Now, he says uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So here we are in this uh, transition from the uh, earthly House, to the Heavenly House, and the Bible says this is taking place by virtue of and by means of the Holy Spirit. Again, uh, we cannot uh, eliminate the work of the Holy Spirit because all of this is in the background of Ezekiel. All of these passages are the outworking and the outgrowth of ezekiel 's prophecy, where he promised or God promised through him that he was going to bring Israel back into their own land, he was going to set up the tabernacle, he was going to restore and regather Israel, and he was going to raise them from the dead. And so whenever we're reading the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, all of these things should be in the back of our minds and seeing that God is fulfilling them, God is bringing them to pass. And then in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, According to the working, whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now, I'm going to talk about this concept of working. And this was another uh, point that I kind of discovered when I was in preaching school. That was a long, long time ago. Jack pointed out that that I got more gray hair than than I had the last time he saw me. (laughs) Um, But at any rate, I remember studying this back in preaching school. And I looked at this term, working. And uh, you can see, if you study it carefully, at least in my judgment, that these are passages that focus on the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, uh, in speaking of the resurrection of Christ, it shows us that this was the power by which Jesus was raised from the dead. And of course, we've already alluded to that. Jesus wasn't raised by a non-miraculous spirit. He wasn't raised by non-miraculous power. The Bible says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when? When he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. So the power by which Jesus was raised from the dead was miraculous power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit in the end time of uh, the last days of Israel's old covenant age. Now, again, in Ephesians chapter three and verse twenty, he talked he says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power which works in us. I don't think that's non-miraculous power. They have the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, that's exactly what he tells them. In verse 13, he says, In whom also you trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after having believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of premise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, Until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. In Acts chapter 19, when Paul went to Ephesus and he found certain disciples there, and he asked them the question, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believe? And they said, we've not so much even as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. He says, unto what then were you baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. And after he taught them, he laid hands on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. They received the Holy Spirit. So, The book of Ephesians confirms that, as well as Acts chapter 19, that they have the Holy Spirit. It was not a non-miraculous measure of the Spirit. And so when he says, according to the working, or the power that is within us. Let's look at a few more passages. Now, we've already uh, given you Philippians 3.21, but let's look at Philippians 1 and verse 6. This is a passage that discusses the outworking of the resurrection. Uh, Philippians 1 and verse 6. You know, Don talked about his studies on on Philippians, and I remember when I did my first local work out of of preaching school that this was one of the books that I studied, and it has been a marvelous treasure in terms of the message in this this book. I just and that I became acquainted with a lot of eschatological passages that I hadn't even thought about just studying the book and doing uh, expository lessons from it. But in verse five, uh, he says, "Always." Well, let's read verse four. "Always in every prayer of mine, making request for you with joy, for you all with joy." For your fellowship in the gospel, now notice, from the first day until now. Now does that describe something that is progressive? Yes. He says from the first day until now. So from where they started up to the point where they are at this point. And then he says being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will do what? Will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So what was being worked out with the Philippians? It was their transition into the consummated body of Christ. Paul alludes to that in Philippians chapter 3 when he talks about the resurrection from the dead. So let's go ahead and jump over there and take a look very quickly. And uh, Philippians 3, beginning at verse 11, he says, If by any means I might attain, I might arrive at, I might reach the resurrection from the dead. And this is the out-resurrection from the dead. The resurrection that's taking place out from among the dead ones that Jack was talking about on yesterday. In Acts chapter 4, when the apostles began to preach, the Bible says that the Sadducees, or the priests, were grieved that the apostles preached through Jesus the resurrection out from among the dead ones. In other words, letting them know that here was a Torah-free gospel that was preaching Israel's hope apart from Israel's law. And therefore, they were grieved and very disturbed about it because they were giving people the opportunity to understand and to uh, come into that message and the, the blessings of that message of the resurrection. And so back to Philippians in verse 12, He says, not that I had already attained. That means that he hadn't reached the goal, that it was being worked out. And so, he says, or am already perfected. And the word perfected from telos means to bring to a completion, to consummate. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold on me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus, of God in Christ Jesus. So, just as He had begun the work in the Philippians, that work was also begun in Paul, and they all were uh, working out that transition in the last uh, in the last days of the uh, first century in terms of uh, the old covenant and. Uh, through the message of the gospel. Now again, what about Paul's apostleship? Did he have an apostleship that was appointed by a non-miraculous spirit? Was he uh, un- was he uninspired? Some people would like to tell us that, especially when it comes down to eschatology. Well, uh, you know, there must be something skewed with Paul's uh, inspiration or his es- because his eschatology is skewed. Well, the implication of that is he's uninspired, but that's not what he claimed in Colossians chapter one and the verses 21. The Bible says, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. And did I miss my verse? I did. Uh, what verse is that? Um, let me look at my screen. Where he says, striving according to the working which works in me mightily. Anyway, I'll tell you what I tell them at home. Look it up. <laughs> and then in, in uh, Colossians 2 and verse 12. You have a, a, another passage that uh, focuses on Christ being raised from the dead. And, of course, as we've established, it is a miraculous. He says, Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised Christ from the dead. So I hope uh, these are enough passages at least to demonstrate that this concept of working has to do with the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. You can see a few others in First Thessalonians 2. When he talks about the inspired word of the gospel, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in what? In power. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit, and much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy and of the Holy Spirit. So there are a few other passages as well. Now let's talk about man. Uh, who is determined by his world. Larry brought this up on yesterday, did a marvelous job in his presentation, and so I tried to throw a little chart together here to help us uh, see and understand these concepts that we have in uh, the uh, message of resurrection, especially in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5 begins a lot earlier than chapter 5. It begins uh, at least in chapter 3, and you could really argue for chapter 1 as well, because Paul alludes to some points. There, that relate to it. But nevertheless, let's just start here. Now, what we have here are two worlds. We have the, this age, which is the old covenant world uh, that the Bible speaks of when we read the Gospels and Jesus says, uh, in this age or this world, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the Jewish world. But they also focus on the age to come. And so that's represented by the second uh, circle that you see. And this is the New Covenant age. Well, for a time, there was an overlap. That's the transition. Now, this age is referred to as the mortal body. It is the body of corruption. In Second Peter chapter 1, Paul talks, or rather, Peter talks about being delivered from the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's the corruption that was a part of the Old Covenant, same thing um, in uh, well, just lost that passage too. Look that one up. How about that? <laughs> I'll think of it in a minute. But the mortal body of corruption, and there there are many passages. You can go to Colossians three nine and Ephesians four uh, that deal with that. It's the earthly house or the tabernacle. But let's take a look in. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, so we can build a little bit of foundation for this. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 6, we'll just start there, where Paul talks about their sufficiency being from God, and he says, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, as being, uh, excuse me, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills But the spirit gives life now. So when he's talking about this old covenant, he's talking about the ministration of death. Verse seven, he says, but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadily or look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. in the process of passing away. And if I recall correctly, it's actually saying, is passing away. So in other words, the old covenant didn't find its end when Jesus bowed his head and gave up the ghost, as many would suggest. It was still in the process of transitioning. Hebrews 8 and verse 13. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first old, now that which decays and waxes old, Is nigh unto vanishing." And so, he says, it is passing away. So here was this ministry of death that was in existence, but yet it was passing away. And thus he says, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. I think I told this up in Washington. When I was a teenager, I had a job, a summer job, and I would have to ride the bus way from my neighborhood. It was quite a distance. And I had to ride the bus from my neighborhood, and then after we got off the bus, we would walk to the school where we worked in the library. And there were several of us. There were uh, guys and girls. And it was always, you know, to our, um, I guess, satisfaction of our ego to be able to walk along with those pretty girls. Well, one day, we were walking, and um, this guy named David, drove up in a brand new shiny candy apple red drop top convertible Beerick skywalk. And the girl that I was trying to walk close to looked at David and said, ah, David <laughs> And she took off and jumped in that car. <laughs> so the glory that David had <laughs> So much more excelled my glory that it seemed as though I had none. (laughs) I hated him for the rest of that summer. (laughs) But that's what the scripture is saying. The old covenant had glory, but the glory of the new so far excelled it that it made it appear as though it had no glory. And so Paul said in verse 12, Therefore, since we have such hope in this new covenant life coming about, we use great plainness of speech. No, Don, please don't tell me that. (laughs) Take him out now. (laughs) Oh, wow. Now, so he says then, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away or what is passing away. But their minds were blinded until this uh, day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Covenant because the veil is taken away in Christ. Now the Lord is that spirit. I'll come to that in a minute. Let me kind of finish this chart because I I see now that I'm really going to be rushed here. So what we're looking at then is this ministry of death. That's that old covenant world. It's that mortal body of corruption. It's that earthly house and tabernacle. And then we have the new covenant world, which is the ministry of the spirit, the ministry of life, the, the spirit that gives life. And that's, the, that's what was awaiting them in that age to come, which they were already tasting of it. And that's why you see this in-breaking in the center here. But that was the last days of the Holy Spirit's ministry, that time of transition. Now, people talk about individuals, and we want to get caught up with individual resurrection, but this is argued from the corporate body. Individuals participate in it inasmuch as they are part of the world in which they live. So the individuals in these bodies, respected bodies, are being transformed, for example, from the old to the new, from uh, death to life. And when your world changes, your life changes. So when they change from a ministry of death to a ministry of life, that's their resurrection. Now, in Ezekiel sixteen, to uh, this is this is I'm just supposed to be starting my lesson right now. God spread a covering over Israel's nakedness, and uh, and one of the points that well, it's it's here in this point now. We talked about nakedness on yesterday. Well, when you go to Ezekiel 16, God says when he found Israel, she was, her navel was uncut, she was uh, just writhing in her blood, etc., filthy, etc. And God said that he washed her, he clean, cleaned her up, and he spread his cloak over her, a covering over her, and entered into a covenant with her. Now, if you will read on down in the chapter, a few verses later, he will tell you the covering that he put over her. It was a covering of badger skins, and he had the the, uh, uh, jewels and golds and all those things that he decked her out with, but that is tabernacle language. So in other words, when God enters into the covenant relationship with Israel, he covers her nakedness with the tabernacle. And that's also the marriage relationship between the two. Remember, in Exodus 25, God told him to make this tabernacle. If you go there and you look at all of the um, materials of the tabernacle, you'll see they're the same as those which are in Ezekiel. And then he says, thank you, Keep, keep doing that. God would destroy, in Isaiah. Now look at what God promised, however. Go to Isaiah 25. Even though Israel has this covering, God promised that the time was coming when he was going to destroy this covering that Israel had. And so in verse 25 And verse 7, And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all the people. Now what covering did Israel have? They had their tabernacle. And the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death. The removing of the veil, the removing of the covering, is the swallowing up of death. Because it was that ministry of death. And so, and the Lord, here's our covenantal language again. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken to him. That's language that comes out of Ezekiel as well. Now, when we take all of that very quickly to 2 Corinthians 5, the Bible says, for if the earthly house, this tent, meaning that temporary dwelling, is destroyed, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The tabernacle of the temple was the physical structure that represented and defined Israel's fellowship with God. And that's why he said in Exodus 25 and verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary, why? That I may dwell among them. And so the primary essence of fellowship in the earthly tabernacle was defined, however, as not the way. In Hebrews 9, 6 through 9, when he enumerates and goes through all of those pieces of furniture that were in the tabernacle, and what they signified. He says all of these things, the Holy Spirit signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not made manifest or is not made manifest. So even though that tabernacle was there, it did not make manifest the way into the holiest. But Jesus said, I am what? The way. Alright, we gotta move on. Can't do too much commenting here. Well, we've already kinda covered that, so let's, let's move on. Now, after chapter 3, and there were other verses there in 2 Corinthians 3 that I wanted to talk about, because he talks about turning, when they turn to the Lord. The Lord is that Spirit. And he says, and we are being transformed from glory to glory. There's the transition. And so Paul says in verse 4 and verse, uh, chapter 4 and verse 1, seeing we have this ministry, we faint not. They were being transformed from the body of death to life, he says we are always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 10. And he wanted to be conformed to Jesus' death. That is a complete separation, departure from the old covenant world into the realm of the spirit, into the new covenant world, Philippians 3 and verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Suffering and dying to the age of death for Jesus' sake. <laughs> in preaching the Torah-free gospel. done scratching his ear. I'm thinking of giving you signs. Now, <laughs> like being in a, uh, what do you call those bidden things, uh, auction. Why die to the old world? This is always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Now, I take that to be the body of Moses. Paul's life in the body was hidden but was not manifested. They were struggling in that body. They were suffering in that body. They were being persecuted in that body. And he says... They wanted it to be manifested. Colossians 3, 3 and 4, Romans 8, 19, and Philippians 3 and verse 21. I can't quote them. I'm just going to have to move on. But he never shrunk back from that commission to live a dying life to that old world. Galatians 2, through 14. You did see some of the other apostles kind of uh, stutter on that and stumble. But Paul never did. He says, if I build again that which I've destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Now, Dying in that body, just as they carried the dying of the Lord Jesus to the body of Moses. Paul wanted the life of Jesus to be manifested in the body. He also wanted the life of Jesus to be manifested in their mortal flesh. That is, to experience resurrection life in their daily walk. That is, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. They expected something after. Don did a good job on that with Mark 9.1. So then, death is working in us. Death to what? That ministration of death. And light is working in you, that is, Gentiles who were not under nor permitted to practice the law. Well, i just got to go on beyond this. I can't deal with this. Um, this is all about Second Corinthians 5. Let me just point out just a couple of things since we've established a few things. When he said that we should not be found naked, the word found is a technical term for the Phariseean. That again is Philippians 3 and verse 9, that I may be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So nakedness or being found naked has nothing to do with physical death. It has to do with the parousia and how they would be found. It is focused not on physical death, but on the parousia and um, in Revelation. Let's see, where am I? You got me rushing now. Don says I'm out of time anyway. But at any rate, let me just uh, conclude. And I'll just give you all these charts and you can finish, uh, finish the lesson. But in Revelation, I believe it's 16 and verse 15, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Jesus warned them that he was uh, coming as a thief. And he said, beware lest they uh, see your nakedness and they see your shame. Uh, this was in the context of the uh, of, of warning them about going back into apostasy in the old covenant system. Well, I really wanted to get to uh, uh, covering the points in Second Corinthians as a result of what we were establishing, but it's just not, not possible with the time. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here, and thank you for uh, taking the time to listen.